And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope you enjoyed our last couple of episodes. We had a pair of guidance. First, the annual Christmas tradition of looking at a Power Rangers Christmas episode with uh, the Power Rangers Samurai Christmas episode. And then, just recently, the 2018 Monster Mash movie preview that I did with my brother, where we took a look at some upcoming giant monster movies uh, that'll be hitting the big screens uh, this coming year when we took a look at the trailers for Pacific Rim Uprising, Rampage, and Jurassic World Lost Kingdom. So I hope everyone enjoyed those episodes. We're getting back on track with a regular episode here today. We've got a great episode planned for you. We're going to be taking a look at a... uh, a film that was for quite a while very well known here in the U.S. seems to have dropped off a little bit with Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster featuring everyone's favorite really jumbo shrimp. We're also going to be taking a look at the next issue of Marvel Comics Godzilla, which is issue number 15, which takes a sort of Wild West detour uh, for the King of the Monsters as he continues his path through the Marvel Universe. Uh, a little bit of news before we get started. Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters. This was the official feature-length anime from Toho. This has been released internationally on Netflix as of January 17th. So if you are listening to this show, you pretty much should be able to watch this on Netflix. Uh, You can expect coverage of this one in the very near future here on Earth Destruction Directive. I have not had a chance to watch it as of recording, but not for lack of interest, just lack of time. I've heard some pretty good things about it. Looking forward to... Uh, giving it a watch, and also looking forward to talking about it a bit more here on the show. So if you've seen Planet of the Monsters, why don't you send in an email, Directive at yahoo.com, and uh, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear about it. One of the films that uh, Jay and I covered on the Monster Mash movie preview was Rampage, and Lennard Toys, best known for their line of G.I. Joe compatible um, three and three-quarter inch uh, army toys, the core... They are doing Rampage toys. Now, this should not come as too much of a surprise as they did the toys for uh, Kong of Skull Island. And uh, they're very similar sort of things is that they are sets pairing soldiers and vehicles and monsters. And there are uh, three basic price points. You've got the lower price point, which has smaller versions of our three monsters, George, Ralph, and Lizzie along with a soldier and some environmental equipment. Then the mid-range price points have a larger version of our three monsters, again, along with a soldier and then a small vehicle. And then the large price point is the mega-sized George, which is a a, a repaint, and I think it might have a new head sculpt of uh, Kong, the giant Kong from the Skull Island line, uh, made it up to look like, like George. Now, what's neat about these, as I said, they do include uh, standard Lennard uh, three and three quarter inch G.I. Joe style core figures. They have 
some old designs that have been out of the line for a little bit coming back, and we also have a new head sculpt for The Rock. So on the medium George and the large George, the figure that comes with it is The Rock. So if you've ever wanted a three and three quarter inch Dwayne Johnson to put with your G.I. Joe displays, now you got your opportunity. You can live out all your favorite, you know, The Rock beating up Sergeant Slaughter dreams, I guess, if you really want to do that. So very cool. Those are exclusively in Walmart. They have started hitting doors uh, as of this recording. So please take a look if you're interested in that. Subaraya has announced that the uh, Ultraman manga, which started a few years back and is actually quite good. It's been translated into English by Viz. I have, I think, the first two or three Tonkabons. It's actually quite good. Well, the Ultraman manga will be adapted into an anime, a feature-length anime, and it will be released in 2019 in Japan. Now, uh, hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for this one. We don't have a lot of information right now. I say feature length. I'm assuming it's going to be a movie. That's the way Subaraya tends to do it rather than a show. But it might be a show. We don't have a lot of details yet. Um, uh, we're expecting to get more information as we move into 20 uh, through 2018. Uh, there are several... Um, kind of, I guess, expositions that anime news mainly comes out of in Japan. So until we get more information, we're going to have to put this one on the back burner. But that's very cool. I mean, I really like the Ultraman manga. The only reason that I'm not caught up on it is just that I've got to either buy them off of Amazon or I've got to wait until they show up in my previews catalog and order them. But it's a very cool modernist take on uh, the Ultraman mythos. And it changes things up just enough and it's not just rehashing the old story. It's very cool. So if you get a chance to check out that manga, I recommend it. And I'll keep us up to date and informed anything I can find out on the upcoming anime. One last note, not really a piece of news, but actually something I picked up, which was uh, really, really brought a big smile to my face. As I've mentioned on this show and others, I have two quite good used bookstores right near me here in the upstate of South Carolina. And one of them is Second and Charles, which is the used bookstore format of Books A Million. And in addition to books, of course, they also have movies and video games and toys and collectibles and that sort of stuff. Well, I was in Second and Charles, and I was perusing the uh, Sony PSP games because I got a PSP last year. Uh, mostly just to... Uh, I picked it up real cheap, and I love handheld gaming. It, the PSP is actually an emulation monster if you like playing old retro games, but you can find actual PSP games quite cheap also. And one of the things about the PSP was that it used a proprietary UMD format that Sony developed, this tiny little disc format. And they not only released games for the PSP on this format, they released movies. So I happened to be perusing through, and they had a small section of UMD movies. So you can imagine my surprise when peering out for me was Godzilla Final Wars on UMD. And it was marked $4 with my trade credit. It was about $2.50. How could I pass that up? Such a, uh, a Godzilla movie on such an obscure video format that I can actually play. It's so wonderful. Now, I went and did some research after. There were actually two Godzilla movies released on the UMD format, Final Wars and Godzilla 98. So if I ever come across Godzilla 98, I'll have the complete Godzilla UMD collection. And this was complete with the case and the insert art and everything. Looks great, plays great. So I'll keep that one in my PSP bag. And hey, you never know. Maybe I'll watch that one when we finally get around to Final Wars instead of breaking out the DVD. You never know. So just a little a little funny note. It's one of those things. If you've got a used bookstore in your, or uh, you know, a place like that in your area, go through and check it out. You never know what you're going to find. Always an adventure. So, all right, I'm going to take a quick break. 
Uh, and then we'll be right back to talk about Godzilla versus the sea monster right here on Earth Destruction Directive. in one of the most explosive action pictures ever to hit the screen. From the depths of the ocean comes the most terrifying horror of the deep. From within the mountain caves comes the dreaded monster Godzilla. titanic battle ever screened when the monster of the deep challenges the mighty Godzilla. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, aka Ibera, Horror of the Deep, was released in Japan under the title Gojira, Ibera, Mosura, Nankai no Daiketo, which translates as Godzilla, Ibera, Mothra, Great Duel in the South Seas, on December 17th, 1966. It was released to U.S. television uh, in 1968, and unfortunately was never released theatrically in the U.S., at least widely. There is some belief that it may have played in a few theaters as Ibra Horror of the Deep, but I can neither confirm nor deny that. So, uh, it's long been the belief this film was never released theatrically in the U.S., and I am going to stick with that. Our director is Jun Fukuda. Our writer is Shinichi Sekizawa. Special effects by Eji Subaraya. Our music is by Masaro Sato. And our producer is, as always, Tomiyuki Tanaka. After Yada is lost at sea, his younger brother Ryota steals a yacht with two guys he meets at a dance contest, Ichino and Nita, and a bank robber on the lam, Yoshimura. However, the crew runs afoul of the giant lobster Ibera and washes up on the shore of Lekti Island. There, a terrorist organization manufactures heavy water for their purposes, as well as a chemical that keeps Ibera at bay. The organization, known as the Red Bamboo, has enslaved natives from nearby Infant Island to help them. But the natives hope to awaken Mothra, now a full-grown moth, once again to rescue them. In their efforts to avoid capture, Ryota and his friends, aided by a beautiful native girl, Dayo, stumble across Godzilla sleeping within a cliffside cavern. The group devises a plan to defeat the Red Bamboo and escape from the island. As part of this process, they wake up Godzilla using a makeshift lightning rod. 
Godzilla fights Ibra, but the giant crustacean escapes. Godzilla is then attacked by Ukonduru, a giant condor, and a squad of red bamboo fighter jets, but he destroys them both. During their plan, Ryota ends up tangled up in an observation balloon and floats off of Lekti Island, landing at an infant island, where he finds Yada. Ryota and Yada sail back to Lekti, and our heroes free the enslaved natives as Godzilla begins to destroy the red bamboo base. Godzilla smashes a tower that has a self-destruct button that makes the island unstable. As the red bamboo try to escape, they discover to their horror that the natives have begun producing a fake version of the yellow mist, meaning that nothing will stop Ibera from destroying their ship, which he promptly does, sinking it and eliminating the threat of the red bamboo. Godzilla fights Ibera once again, and this time defeats it, ripping off both of Ibera's claws and causing the monster to retreat to the sea. The natives summon Mothra to save everyone. However, Godzilla challenges Mothra when she gets to the island. Mothra manages to push Godzilla away and carry the natives and our heroes off. Godzilla escapes from the island just before the self-destruct enacts and it goes up in a puff of smoke. Alright, so uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster is a very definite change of pace for this series. You know, we've come off of um, what Jack Bond referred to as the middle trilogy with uh, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and Monster Zero. And we take a, a kind of sharp turn here into a different tone, a different setting, a different type of story. And so it definitely is a big shift for the series. Uh, getting away from some of the more heavy science fiction elements that we've gotten in the previous entries. And something a bit more adventurous, a bit more fun. Um, and, and part of this is because uh, this film had slightly different crew working on it in some capacities than the previous films. The main one that you probably noticed when I read the uh, credits is the director, who is Jun Fukuda. Now, Fukuda was brought in to direct the project because Tomoyuki Tanaka thought that the crew that they had, including Honda directing, was getting into something of a rut. And we've talked about this, that Sekizawa's scripts have certain elements that recur, and some of those elements do in fact recur here as well. But uh, Tanaka thought that bringing in a new director might change things up a little bit, and, you know, they had been experiencing a decline in ticket sales pretty much from straight on through. If you look at King Kong vs. Godzilla, which had the highest, it's been kind of a, a decreasing line of sales through the three films that follow it, despite their quality, uh, they weren't necessarily attracting the same audience, so Tanaka wanted to try something different, and to that end, he brought in Fukuda. Now, Fukuda took the job mostly because he felt that he had to, rather than any specific reason that he wanted to. Uh, Fukuda was working on a couple of projects for Japanese television at the time, and, you know, he, many times, Jun Fukuda had said that he never thought there should have been any sequels to the original Godzilla. So the idea of doing a, uh, a film like this was not really something he wanted to do, but he, f he felt that he didn't have much choice and that he had to do it, so he took the job anyway. Uh, now, what's funny is that Fukuda was not a science fiction fan. One of the films he directed earlier in his career was the mutant film Secret of the Telegion, and that was why Tanaka tapped him because he thought, oh, we did a sci-fi film, he should be a good fit. Fukuda preferred action dramas or doing kind of um, comedies. Toho had a series of films called Young Guy, which was Young Guy in Hawaii, Young Guy in 
the South Seas, and these were, uh, you know, kind of ensemble comedies, and Fukuda did several of these. So that was more his style. So, uh, so he brought that kind of attitude about action, drama, and a little bit of comedy, and kind of a lighter touch. That's what Fukuda brought to this film, and it's interesting to see how that contrasts with Honda's more serious and more stylized uh, direction style, whereas Fukuda's a bit more naturalistic. Now, Fukuda would go on to become Toho's Godzilla director for most of the 1970s, but as I said, he never really liked the gig all that much. And We'll see more of Fukuda's work as we go forward here and move uh, out of the 60s and into the 70s. We'll see more of Jun Fukuda, and his name will become much more common. Now, also interesting about this film is that it didn't start out as a Godzilla film. This film originally was a thriller for King Kong, and it was entitled Operation Robinson Crusoe. And once you know that bit of information, that the same basic story was going to exist, except instead of Godzilla, it was going to be King Kong, a lot of this movie starts to fall in line. Now, this never came to pass, obviously, and the reason for this was that at the time that this was made, um, Rankin-Bass owned the rights to make um, TV shows and movies based on King Kong, and they were producing their King Kong animated series here in the U.S. So they got in touch with Toho about doing a live-action Kong film, and this was a script that Toho developed. Now, Rankin-Bass was not really impressed with this script. They felt that it was too different from the type of stories they were doing on their cartoon, and thus they were not happy with it, and they said, no, we're not going to do it at this time. Now, Toho, as we've seen, is not one to waste anything. If they've got something they can use, they will use it. So relatively late into the script development, Godzilla was plugged in for King Kong, and otherwise the story just rolls out. So you'll see during this film, there are several situations and instances that occur that make more sense with King Kong than with Godzilla. And so Godzilla's almost out of place in a certain certain parts of this. But I think they did a pretty good job of, you know, uh, removing one monster star and putting in the other monster star and uh, just kind of changing things up from what we had gotten previously. Of course, Rankin-Bass and Toho would settle things out and go on to produce King Kong Escapes, which is a much more ambitious film than what Project Robinson, excuse me, Operation Robinson Crusoe would have been. So in that sense, I think we won out because King Kong Escapes is um, a bit more, um, as I said, ambitious, a bit larger scale in story than this film. Now our cast is a mix of uh, familiar faces at Toho and some less familiar faces is is common, but we do have a few familiar faces coming back. And what's interesting is that a lot of the familiar fa names play against type. Now, like a good example, Akira Takarada, who plays Yoshimura, the bank robber, he usually played in these Toho films a straight-laced hero. He was Ogata way back in the original Godzilla in 1954. He was the reporter Ichiro in Mothra vs. Godzilla. He was astronaut Fuji in Monster Zero. And actually, he comes back in King Kong Escapes to play Lieutenant Jiro, who was the second in command, and he was kind of the love interest a little bit for Linda Jo Miller. He's the one who rescues her off her Tokyo Tower. So again, playing kind of a straight hero. Here, he plays Yoshimura with a kind of roguish charm as the bank robber. Uh, he never gets caught, never has to pay for the fact that he robbed a bank, and he uses his skills, particularly his ability to pick locks, to help overthrow Red Bamboo. 
So this, again, kind of against type and a different type of character for a hero in the Godzilla series, from, you know, compared to what we had seen prior. Uh, Kumi Mizuno, she plays Dayo, uh, the native girl, and she is one of the better Toho heroines insofar as she's not timid or submissive, and really the only thing she cowers at this entire film is Godzilla, and it's like, okay, it's Godzilla, fine. You can be scared of Godzilla. I don't care who you are. Uh, so she comes off better than a lot of other uh, Toho heroines who sometimes were, uh, you know, kind of pigeonholed a little bit into the traditional Japanese female roles of younger sister or girlfriend and was expected to, you know, uh, not make any waves. Here, you know, she is right in there mixing it up with the boys as they're fighting against Red Bamboo. Another familiar face is Akihiko Harada. And he looks very familiar because, once again, he has an eye patch, as he did as Dr. Serizawa in Godzilla. But, instead of portraying a scientist or a doctor, as Harada normally portrayed, not only in uh, movies, but also he played a recurring role as a scientist in Ultraman, here he is the cruel uh, field commander of the Red Bamboo, who's the one leading all the machine gun-toting Red Bamboo goons that are hunting our heroes through the island. So, again, playing against type. And his commanding officer is none other than Jun Tazaka, who often portrayed senior scientists, much as he did in Monster Zero, or generals, like he was uh, in War of the Gargantuas, came out the same year as this, but here, again, plays a villain instead of a hero. So, um, you know, it, using... Uh, using the a lot of the, the kind of standard Toho players, but using them in different types of roles, you know, again, changes the feeling of the film. We don't have Takarada as uh, as the reporter or, you know, the, the military man. Here, he's a, he's a rob bank robber, you know. So we don't have Harada as a scientist that everybody goes to talk to. No, instead, he's the, the, uh, the evil military guy. So a nice change of pace from a casting standpoint, despite using a lot of the same people that we're used to seeing in these Toho films. One other thing you'll notice right off the bat that's different about this film is the music. And it's not done by Akira Ifukube. It is done once again by Masaru Sato. The last time we saw Sato, he was doing the music on Godzilla Raids Again, a.k.a. Gigantus the Fire Monster, which we covered a long time ago here on the, on the show. Big change of pace. Our themes are more kind of tropical, South Seas Island style, a little bit slower paced, uh, a little bit lighter touch, not as heavy with the, with the, uh, the strings and the bass and the, uh, the marches. So definitely a change of pace. What's interesting is that, um, Sato and Fukuda actually were friends. Uh, for a long time, and they wanted to try, specifically try a change of pace. So that whole change of pace attitude extends even to the music, and it really does give the film a different feel. And I'll comment on the music a couple of times as we go through the uh, the notes here, but just keep your ears open for that, and I'll, I'll cut some music in here so you guys get an idea of how different this film sounds than uh, what we had been getting with Ifukube previously. Now, right at the beginning, um, of the film, we get a dance contest. It's a marathon dance contest that Ryota goes to, um, hoping to win a boat so that he can go out and sail out and try and find his brother Yada. Now, this dance contest is interesting. It's only here for a few minutes. But what it does, that to me is very different from the previous films, it's the youth culture. The Godzilla films up to this point were not really all that interested in the youth culture of Japan. You know, we, we dealt primarily with 
adults. We dealt with military men. We dealt with scientists, doctors, reporters. You know, we didn't deal a lot with kids. And so this idea of having a younger group of uh, protagonists and having this, um, you know, this marathon dance contest being part of it, again, kind of sets a different set of expectations for you right at the beginning of the film. And I think that's a, uh, I, I think in, in this case, it's, it's kind of a, a very fairly subtle way to signal that, hey, you know, this is going to be a little bit different. We're not starting with in a space base or in a uh, reporter looking for a story or something like that. Um, we also get introduced to uh, a good, uh, good portion of our characters here. Now I watched the international dub, which is the one that's, uh, regularly available now. Um, the old Walter Reed TV dub has basically fallen out. Now, if you get the old VHS, you can have that one, but now, um, on DVD and Blu-ray, you'll get the international dub. There is some really interesting, and that's being diplomatic, choices for Ryota and Nita's voices. Um, Ryota because he's the younger brother, sounds like a little kid almost. It's very off-putting the first time you hear it. He's really kind of high-pitched and, you know, he sounds like he sounds like he should be about 12 with this voice rather than probably about 18 or so is how old I think Ryota's supposed to be. And Nita, Nita sounds like this, it's this broad, almost Jerry Lewis type comedy voice like ay, 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 you know, and it's, and, and Nita is a comedy relief character so I, I, I get what they're going for, but it's a little broad, even for an international dub. Usually the international dub voices are somewhat flat because the idea being that they dubbed them international because um, the, the dubbing houses were used to working with kind of a flat English voice. But here he's a little over the top and it takes a little bit uh, to get used to, especially if you're used to the old Walter Reed dub uh, where he's not quite as crazy. Uh, but uh, it, uh, the other... The other voices are, are fine, and the dub itself is is good. So it's it's definitely not a um, not a detrimental thing to listen to the uh, international dub as opposed to the Japanese audio, whichever you prefer. So the morning after Ryota, Ichino and Nita stow away on the boat, and they run into uh, uh, Yoshimura. Uh, they turn the radio on, and we get to hear my favorite WPSR, Plot Point Specific Radio, as uh, we learn about a bank robber that has uh, disappeared with uh, all this money from a bank and uh, that, uh, you know, he's hiding out somewhere and people are looking for him and they think he might be on a boat. And of course it turns out to be uh, Yoshimura and we get every now and again, you really are the robber. And it's like, yes, you know, we kind of established that, but he doesn't want to cause a, uh, a scene. Uh, from here we move to the big storm. And this is another one of Se uh, Sekizawa's uh, kind of standard plot elements, having a big storm of some kind being involved in the story. And, um, and the money that Yoshimura has stolen, uh, it gets washed away. We've got it in an attache case, and when the big storm comes and tosses the Yalen, that's the name of the yacht that they're all on, around and they crash and wash up on, uh, on Lekti, we just see the handle of the attache case, so we never see the money. So uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's his punishment because uh, he robs the bank, but he doesn't get to actually have the money instead using his skills to be a hero. So maybe that's something. Now, during the big storm, we see for the first time um, a tease of the new monster, Ibera. Now, Ibera can also be pronounced Ebera or Ibera. I've always said Ibera uh, because I think Ibi, that's the word for shrimp in Japanese. So Ibera, that's kind of how I've always said it. I've heard it pronounced all three ways. But it's actually quite ominous because the first time we see him, we just see his giant claw rising up very slowly out of the, out of the, uh, the sea. 
and uh, they don't, it's a giant claw, it's a giant claw, they don't know what to make of it. And uh, they're in the middle of the storm, in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific, and it's the middle of the night, so it's actually, it's, it's a bit scary, you know? I've said this before, that so much of um, Japan still to this day deals with fishing and being out in the sea, especially for a lot of these smaller villages. We see at the beginning that uh, Ryota and Yada come from a, a relatively small coastal village, that having stuff, scary things happen out at sea in a small boat, that's a very real thing. You know, there's, that's not, uh, that's not a, that's a situation that a lot of Japanese viewers could be aware of, of being out at sea and getting stuck with a, uh, in the middle of a, a pop-up storm or a, a squall of some kind. And then you add the science fiction element of a giant monster, a giant sea creature out there. Uh, that's actually, um, uh, I think that's really well done. And as I said, it's, it's a good tease of, Ibera without just showing him outright immediately. Now, in the U.S. television version, they use this scene at the beginning to represent what happened to Yada. And it starts with this, and this creates kind of a continuity gap because you see Yalen clearly on the side of Yada's boat and then on the actual Yalen later. So I like it better this way, the Japanese style, where it starts out a little placid and then we get a big tease of the monster before we get the full reveal rather than an admittedly more Western style of having the T's right up front. So I prefer this version. So our four heroes wash up on Lekti Island and they're concerned that there might be cannibals on the island. They specifically use the word cannibals, which I think is very quaint you know, in a very 1960s sort of way because of course the South Seas Island has cannibals on it. They've got no evidence that if, that if there's anyone on the island, they find the sword. So they know there's gotta be somebody on the island, but they have no evidence that anyone they find might be a cannibal because they found a sword, that's it. So that, that just amused me as they run around. And while they're running around, they get onto a relatively high um, cliff face and they see the red bamboo ship coming in and they spraying the yellow mist all around. They go, what's that it's spraying? What's that it's spraying? They don't understand. And um, the, the ship is definitely a science fiction type design. It looks kind of like a ship you might expect like the Ultra Guard to be piloting on an Ultraman show. Um, definitely not a standard issue naval ship. It unfortunately does not get a name at least not in the, uh, that I've seen and certainly not referred to in the international dub, uh, which is a little disappointing. I would expect that maybe like RB1 or something like that, at least have some kind of name, um, for the ship. But it's an, it's an interesting, that, um, interesting, uh, design and it has sprayers on it to spray the yellow mist, which of course we'll learn is to repel Ebra, but at this point is still mysterious. Now, um, when this comes in, uh, they have a whoop whoop noise. And everybody knows the whoop whoop noise. Whoop, whoop, whoop. So all I've got to say is... Slowly. I have to move slowly away too. Whoop, whoop. Huh? Hey, shag on out there, beanie boys, and fix that whoop, whoop noise. Hmm? Now, after the whoop, whoop noise uh, uh, goes away, the uh, they start unloading their cargo. And they say, unload the cargo. And the cargo is... Uh, groups of natives from Infant Island. So already you know that these guys, from their military-style uniforms and the fact that one of the guys is wearing an eye patch, they're probably bad guys, just from the way they look. They're not. It, these are not regular uh, Japanese military uniforms. They're not American military uniforms. We've seen those in Godzilla films up to this point. This is clearly something different. And, um, you know, the way that they salute is different, so we know something's up. And then they start unloading their cargo, and it's obviously kidnapped natives that they're pointing machine guns at. And you know right away that these are bad guys. And these red bamboo 
is almost like a miniature version of Spectre from the James Bond films. They've got an island base. They're kidnapping people into slave labor. They're creating, you know, they're, they're doing mysterious stuff for strange reasons. They've got a lot of men in uniform running around working for them. And I think that Red Bamboo as a group of villains, as a villainous organization, is a perfect fit for what Fakuda and the rest of the crew were trying to do here in order to have a change of pace, having this international terrorist organization as the villain, um, you know, instead of a, a political villain like in Ghidorah or an, yeah, a space invader that was a relatively, um, you know, uh, straight sci-fi thing like in uh, Monster Zero. Here, something a little bit, a little bit different. And uh, again, having the island base and uh, all that, it really does kind of uh, smack of James Bond, which makes sense as James Bond was very popular in Japan. And we've talked about this before, that in 1968, Toho was involved a little bit in the production, the Japanese side production of You Only Live Twice. And of course, we got a couple of the ladies in that film as well, so. Pretty sure you mean 1967, you goofball. So having a James Bond style uh, villainous organization made sense for this film. Now, uh, after the infant Islanders are unloaded, we get an escape attempt and um, you know, so some of the, the guys make a break for it. And again, if, if Red Bamboo's not scummy enough for stealing people from an island, they gun them down with machine guns when they try to escape. And then the two that manage to get to the, to the coast and find a, uh, a boat and paddle away, they are killed by Ibra. Now, this we get to see the full reveal of Ibra as he rises up and smashes their little uh, boat and then picks them up and eats them. And this is the first real instance we've seen of a monster eating humans in the Godzilla series. We would see this in much more famously in War of the Gargantuas, which we will cover eventually here. But Ibra eating the humans is a first for a Godzilla villain. And it's, uh, it, it, it's really, it's kind of creepy because he just skewers them and picks them up with his, uh, with his, one of his claws and eats them. Ibra is, I mean, Ibra takes a fair amount of drubbing because he's just a giant lobster or a giant shrimp or a giant crustacean of some kind. He doesn't have any special powers other than, you know, the ones that you expect a crustacean to have. He can breathe underwater. He can swim. He's got his two claws. This is one of the first things that you notice makes much more sense if this film stars King Kong than Godzilla because Ibra is a much bigger threat to someone like King Kong, who can't breathe underwater, doesn't have the atomic breath weapon, you know, that kind of stuff, where you can imagine that Ibra could clamp onto Kong and drag him underwater to try to drown him. Uh, whereas Godzilla, he can hang out underwater as long as he wants. So Ibra is a well-designed crustacean monster, and I think he's realized really nice. He, he really moves well. Um, he, I, to me, I think he looks really cool, but even though he's kind of a weakling when it comes to the other kind of pantheon of monsters that Godzilla, uh, tangles with, he doesn't even have the benefit of Kamakuras and there being three of them. There's just the one. So, uh, I, I like Ibra. He's, he's a lesser monster, but I still think he's a well-designed and well-executed monster. And it's, uh, uh, a little sad that he never really comes back except in stock footage in Godzilla's Revenge and then... A, uh, a short appearance in Godzilla Final Wars many, many years later. Now, during this escape attempt, Dio manages to escape, and she gets met by our heroes who convince her, no, no, look, we're your friend, we're your friend. And so, with Dio joining the group, they continue to run through the jungle hiding from the Red Bamboo. The music continues to be much lighter, much more adventurous, not a heavy sort of... Uh, 
uh, March or anything like that. Reminds me a bit of the theme 007 from From Russia With Love, which is many recognized as kind of the secondary James Bond theme. Not exactly like that, but kind of what I always think of when I hear the Japanese score for this film. Um, now, uh, when they finally do escape, uh, they, they, they get a little bit of separation and uh, Dio takes a moment to stop and pray to Mothra and we, um, she, she can't, she can't reach Mothra. It's, oh, Mothra must be, is too far away. She can't hear me. And, uh, so we, we cut a little bit to Infant Island and we see the natives praying and naturally we see the twin fairies. Now what's interesting here is that the twin fairies are not played by the Peanuts. They're played by another singing group called Pear Bambi. And I know nothing about Pear Bambi. I've never even heard any of their songs outside of the context of this or anything like that. Um, apparently the Peanuts were unavailable to do it, so they got Pear Bambi to fill in for them. The fairies have a relatively small role in the film. They don't have that much to do. But it is pretty clear, uh, even from their short scenes, that they don't have the same type of childlike innocence that the fairies had. That is kind of their main stock and trade that I, I always liked. And most fans and most viewers that I know really identify with the Twin Fairies. So this is just kind of a, a one-off. So it, it's not that big a deal, but it is noticeable. It's one of those ones that, man, this, even if they could have gotten them just for a short amount of time, I think the film would have been improved by having um, the Peanuts back as the Twin Fairies for a little bit of consistency. Uh, we find out that um, the red, what the Red Bamboo employs the Infant Island Natives to do is to create a strange juice that they spray. Naturally, it's a Sekizawa script. We need to have some kind of strange juice in there, most likely, right? We had it in King Kong versus Godzilla. We had it in Mothra versus Godzilla. We got to have it once again. Um, in this case, the strange juice used, of course, to repel Ibra. So uh, that explains the yellow mist. And uh, maybe this will be important later. You got to pay attention, you know? Uh, after finding out about the strange juice, our heroes are hiding out in a cave and they find napping Godzilla. Now, this is one more reason that this makes more sense with King Kong because we had seen that King Kong was prone to taking naps in King Kong versus Godzilla and we could understand that Kong might curl himself up in a cozy cave and have a nap on this island. Whereas Godzilla, you know, if we've seen him be dormant, it was under the water or frozen in the iceberg. So he was, again, more aquatic. So having it be in a mountain, once again, would suggest King Kong. So we continue to wrap these things up. Now, as a kid, I never noticed any of these, but once you know that this was written for Kong, little things like this just become more plain. Um, we get a reuse of one of my favorite sound effects um, when uh, they do some reconnaissance and they find out that it's actually a heavy water factory. That's what they're making is heavy water, which is one of those things that it's always a convenient thing to make because it's easy to say, people understand, oh, heavy water has to do with uh, atomic bombs, so it's bad. Heavy water, bad. So, uh, But we use the uh, the sound effect for the interior of the, um, the heavy water factory is the same that is used inside the... Uh, the Exion's spaceship. So it's like the Exion control sound effect. So you get it, get it for a few seconds here and there. Nice to hear that one again. One of my favorites from the Toho standard library of sound effects. So very neat. Now, Godzilla appears earlier than this, but he does not wake up until 53 minutes into this film. 
So don't let people tell you that a modern film, which has a while before the monster shows up, is not being honest to the uh, to the Showa era. Because there was a couple of times where, yeah, he just took off the whole first half of the movie to take a nap, basically. Now, how Godzilla is revived uh, once more is a King Kong thing. Because they, they steal, our heroes manage to steal some wire during their reconnaissance mission in, into the Red Bamboo Base. And they use the sword as a lightning rod and then run the wire down and drop it on Godzilla when there's a big storm coming. And lightning hits the sword and the lightning revives Godzilla. And it actually, it's almost like the George Reeves Superman because he comes bursting out of the volcano. Or out of the mountain, I should say. It's this great, you know, him smashing his way out of the, the rock walls. It's actually very cool. But being revived by electricity. That's King Kong. You know, again, from King Kong versus Godzilla, we established that lightning made Kong stronger, whereas the electrical barricade in that film, and to a lesser degree in Mothra versus Godzilla, actually somewhat work against Godzilla. Not so much the barricade in Mothra versus Godzilla, but the artificial lightning. So again, having him be powered up by lightning and revived by lightning, once again, a King Kong element. Now, this leads directly into the first fight with Ibra. And this is a fairly well-known fight because this stock footage was reused in Godzilla's Revenge a few years later. The main takeaway from this is the uh, there's a couple of really memorable scenes. The first is the boulder war. This is where Godzilla picks up a boulder and hurls it at Ibra, another King Kong aspect. And Ibra bats it back with his, uh, with his claw and then Godzilla headbutts it back. Ibra catches one in his, catches the boulder in his claw, then throws it back. And they keep going back and forth like this for a while. Then Godzilla has enough of that and wades out into the water and they start tussling. Uh, the second memorable shot from this is the shoulder throw, where Godzilla grabs Ebra by one of his claws and actually suplexes him right over his head. And uh, there's a great model kit, an old garage kit of this that's been around for years, which is, uh, uh, and I know they've, I want to say they made like a Gashapon toy of this and stuff, of Godzilla tossing Ebra over his head. It's very neat. And especially in the effects tank where you know that Haru Nakajima could not have had the best of leverage, so he had to use a lot of uh, wires and stuff to get the Ebra suit over. It's very cool. And this fight also has the first underwater fight in the Godzilla series where um, there are some scenes that are kind of simulated underwater, but there are some shots where uh, Godzilla and Ibra are both fully underwater in the effects tank. And uh, basically the guys in the suits would grab a few quick gulps of air. They'd, do a, they'd shoot and then they'd go get more air and they cut around that. It's very neat. Um, they they um, put like a filter over all the sound effects because they're underwater and the music gets quieter too. Uh, so it's actually a neat little scene. And if you've got a monster who is the sea monster and he's, you know, a, a, able to fight underwater, go for it. I think it's a good use of it. And again, it's something that we hadn't seen before. It's something a little different. Uh, Ibra eventually uh, retreats and Godzilla goes back onto the mainland. And this is where uh, the one of the most telling of the King Kong type of uh, references happens. And this is what I call G and the girl. This is where Dio gets separated from the group and Godzilla's kind of fascinated with her. He doesn't pick her up or anything, but we see him, she's kind of out in the middle of this open, uh, like, like desolate kind of bouldery, rocky area. And he's just kind of staring at her. And he's obviously interested in her. He's not quite sure what to make of her. And Dio is terrified because it's Godzilla. So she just kind of freezes and doesn't move. And it's like, you can clearly see this was written for King Kong, that Kong would be interested in the native girl, right? And you can imagine he might even pick her up 
at some point, but obviously Godzilla doesn't do that. Uh, so th this is an interesting bit. And what it leads to is some really nice composite shots of Godzilla kind of, because Godzilla actually sits down, which is a very anthropomorphic humanoid type of response. But he sits down and he starts watching Dio and he starts getting sleepy. And as he's starting to doze off, another King Kong thing, there's a composite shot of our heroes running kind of in front of him where they're going to get Dio and Godzilla's behind them. And they're pretty well put together. On the DVD it's and the Blu-ray, it's clear that it's composite, but given when this was made and the technology, it's actually quite nicely done in the way that it's not a flat type of composite. It's actually a jagged composite because of them going around a rock face and such. It's nicely put together composite shots here. Um, after they rescue Dio, Godzilla gets attacked by the rarely remembered and almost never mentioned fourth monster in this film. And that's Ul Condor, which is translates as giant condor. And the giant condor started out as a Rodan flying prop from Ghidorah. And then this prop was used over at Subaraya Studios. It was turned into the monster Litra on Ultra Q, and then again into the monster Larugeus on Ultra Q. So it had been it had been modified a few times. Then Toho brought it back over and they completely modified, put a new head on it, covered it in feathers, new feet, and turned it into the giant condor. Now, you might be saying, why have I never heard of this guy? Well, it's because giant condor has a whopping one minute of screen time before he gets blasted with Godzilla's atomic breath and crashes into the water, never to be seen again. Uh, now this, I mean that literally, because even when this footage is used again in Godzilla's Revenge, it's meant to be a different monster. It's meant to be a giant eagle instead of a giant condor, and Toho in fact credits the monster in Godzilla's Revenge as giant eagle. Yeah, so that's, yeah, basically this is here because this was meant to be an homage to Kong fighting the, ter the pterodactyl in the original King Kong, fighting and easily beating a flying uh, foe of some kind. So more of a footnote than anything else, but he, he comes out of nowhere and that's it. Always, you know, always reminds me, he always reminds me of Aben, the, the evil vulture from Rudolph's Shining New Year. So there's your Rankin-Bass connection right there. Um, yeah, I, I've never, I, I know there are kits and toys of Giant Condor. I've never seen one. Uh, I'd love a little super deform of him, I guess, but man, he's a goof and he does not last long. Um, now this is followed up when the, when the Red Bamboo figures out, hey, our Giant Condor didn't do much. Let's launch our Air Force. So we get a scene of the Red Bamboo Air Force attacking Godzilla. Now, this is one, I'd always heard these things just referred to as Red Bamboo Fighters. And that's basically what they are because they are the Red Bamboo's private air force. But while doing some research for this, this is a very interesting thing I note. They are actually, the models are Shenyang J6s. Now the, the J6 was the Chinese version of the Soviet MiG-19, which is the farmer fighter, uh, kind of the flat rounded nose front faced MiG. Not, not like the, not, not some of the more popular MiGs we would see in the eighties, one of the earlier MiGs. Now, this begs the question, with this group being called the Red Bamboo, I'd always assume they were a communist group of some kind, and now they're using a Chinese fighter jet. Are the Chi-Coms supplying or otherwise giving aid to Red Bamboo? Is this like, is this aid, does this group have um, benefactors in the Chinese communist government 
that are helping them out. Maybe Red Bamboo is going to, you know, uh, be working against the, uh, the democratic governments in Asia. Maybe they're a destabilizing agent set up by the Chaikoms. Now, this is way beyond the scope of the film because neither Fukuda nor Sekizawa are interested in delving into the origins of Red Bamboo. But to me, having a Chinese fighter jet really kind of drives that home for this organization that they've got to be somehow connected with the, the, with the, the Chinese government here and that they have to be agents of uh, communism and that they're trying to work with the Chinese government. So um, that just, just little things like that that you don't necessarily notice when you're younger but become a little bit more evident when you look at them with a critical eye. So that was really neat. I had never put that together. I had always assumed they were just a, um, you know, kind of a standard fighter jet. I didn't really, I never realized that it was a specific type that was in use by the, the Chinese government uh, in, in the 60s. This is another King Kong homage, uh, fighting the squadron of fighter jets. Godzilla destroys several of them by grabbing them uh, like Kong does, although a few go down to atomic breath and tail chop. Sato's musical choice here is one of the odd ones. It's like surf music. And I guess it's because Godzilla's kind of dancing around. Not, I mean, he's not like Yangari dancing around. Please don't misunderstand me. But he's kind of dancing around as he's swiping and, and uh, you know, avoiding the jets. So surf music on the, on the uh, soundtrack because it's the South Seas Island. Got to have some surf music, right? So once again, the music continues to be more lighthearted and less heavy and uh, deep than what we got with Ifukube, but certainly appropriate to the setting and the story. Godzilla will eventually make his way over to the Red Bamboo base, and the base model set, it's clearly not as intricate as the city models that we had gotten in the previous um, uh, um, installments. This is a cost-saving measure. One of the main reasons why this film takes place on a Pacific island is a cost-saving measure because islands are easier to film than and easier to build models for than cities. And we would see this a couple more times uh, going forward. And then we'd see um, even ones that didn't take place on islands in the 70s sometimes took place. Uh, the fight would take place on like a barren countryside. Uh, a lot of Godzilla versus Gigan, a lot of Godzilla versus Megalon uh, is like that, uh, where it, it does take place on mainland Tokyo, mainland Japan, excuse me, but it's not in the city that they're fighting. Although, you know, we did get this um, even in, in some of the earlier ones, you know, Ghidorah and Monster Zero, of course, both end on a fight in uh, Mount Fuji, but we did see plenty of cities getting smashed in those films prior to that. So um, They do have an electrical barricade. Uh, it doesn't work this time. One could argue this is either a King Kong homage or not, uh, because the electrical barricade seems to only have a... a it doesn't have the greatest win ratio against Godzilla anyway, so that he walks right through it is not that big a deal. Um, then when the, the, it's clear that Red Bamboo needs to abandon the base, they set off the atomic time bomb, which is uh, a bit okay. Well, you know, they're making heavy water. I guess they have access to their own atomic bomb. And um, what's interesting is as Godzilla tears it apart, we get some interesting both models carnage and full-size carnage because we see the whole set of the heavy water factory with its bright multicolored pipes and stuff being just smashed and destroyed and it sets up like a goldfinger scenario where yoshimura is trying to get to the reach the button to stop it but he can't stop the button that can't reach the button to stop the atomic bomb from counting down to go off so again very much a um action thriller sort of uh, sort of sequence here but i do like the full-scale destruction it really, it's an, it, the set that we saw our heroes running through earlier, now it's been destroyed. They've got to clamber their way through it to try and get out. 
As Red Bamboo escapes, they fall victim to the phony juice. So like all good villains, Red Bamboo gets theirs with their ship being ripped apart by Ibra and presumably all of them get eaten considering that's what we saw him do with the natives earlier. Um, with the uh, with Red Bamboo destroyed, Ibra is back up and now it's once again time for Godzilla and Ibra to fight. It's uh, once more we get more underwater uh, sequences with uh, Nakajima and I don't have the name of the actor who plays Ibra here in front of me, uh, with both the suit actors grabbing quick gulps of air. This fight is a, is about the same length as the earlier one. It doesn't have um, any boulder fights or anything, and it's it's still a close quarters type of fight because every the both times that Godzilla shoots him with the atomic uh, breath, he just kind of he roars back and he doesn't like it, so he closes the gap, and the two of them um, fight kind of tooth and claw. Uh, Godzilla rips off both of Ibra's claws. He just chomps and just rips it off. And it's a great scene here where he, as Ibra runs away after being declawed, uh, Godzilla takes his big claw and does a mocking motion with it. Like he clamps the claw open and closed a few times to mock Ibra. It's like, yikes, Godzilla's not fooling around. Uh, so that's a very cool, very memorable bit from that fight. And a very nice character moment. Naka, Nakajima had been giving Godzilla more and more character as the series had gone on. We saw this clearly in Monster Zero, but we definitely get it here where we get a little bit of character, um, you know, broad character stuff from Nakajima in his portrayal of Godzilla, which I really like. Um, after all the praying and everything, Mothra finally shows up with a couple minutes left in the movie. And, um, you know, so Mothra, the, the twin fairies tell everybody to make a big net. And as they're weaving the net together, uh, from all the branches and stuff. Mothra's got to try and drive Godzilla away because Godzilla, now he's in a fighting mood and he wants to tussle with, with Mothra. And um, I, I always like this little bit, even though they never really get much, Mothra pretty much blows him back a little bit and stays away from him long enough to grab the net and get everybody off the island. But I've seen this kind of, uh, th now th this is again, once again, a relic of the King Kong script because Kong and Mothra had never met. And so having fought a giant condor and a giant lobster, it makes sense for Kong to think, hey, it's a giant moth. This must be another monster for me to fight. Um, but I like this being here with Godzilla. I've seen some folks online say, well, this is a mistake because Mothra and Godzilla were allies at this point. So why would Godzilla attack his ally? But the way I see it also is that Godzilla's he's punchy. You know, he was napping and he got woken up and then had to fight a lobster and a, and a bird and, a, and an, uh, a squadron of fighter jets. And then he just had to fight the lobster again. And now Mothra's here. And I think he's just in a bad mood. And you know, Godzilla, yeah, he is Mothra's ally. But remember, Mothra had to convince Godzilla and Rodan to work with him in um, uh, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. It's not like they're pals. He had to convince him. So I think Godzilla lashing out is in character for him because he's just had enough of this crap. He's had a really lousy day and he doesn't want to deal with Mothra's crap. And so the fact that, that they don't actually have a fight per se, but mostly Godzilla looks aggressive and Mothra pushes him back and then grabs everyone and gets off the island is, uh, is, is a nice touch. And I, I'm glad that that part stayed in. Now, as everyone, including the natives and our heroes are escaping, they're cheering for Godzilla to escape too because the island's going to blow up. And Godzilla, you know, whether he understands or not, he gets the message and he leaps off the side of the island into the effects tank right before the island goes with an earth-shattering kaboom. And um, now this um, this is a pretty well-known shot of Godzilla jumping off. 
Uh, it's interesting that it's it's Nakajima in the full-size costume just leaping off right into the water. So it's actually a, a really nice scene, even, even if it does look a little silly because of the state of the Godzilla suit. Um, it's This is the same suit that was used in Monster Zero. So the suit is a little bit worse for wear. It's getting a little lumpy in places. Uh, so all the stuff they do with it in the water, it was done after this after this movie, and that's not really surprising. So he looks a little goofy in spots, a little bit, uh, I've seen him described a little bit like Cookie Monster in his face. But I, uh, it's, it's not bad. It's a lot better than the suit we'll get in the next film, but we'll cover Son of Godzilla another time. But this scene I really like. And when the island explodes, it's, it's a really nice effect because it's, it's, is some actual explosions, but then we get this big enveloping mushroom cloud and the island actually appears to sink and be hidden underneath the water. So it actually does look like an atomic explosion. It's very nicely done little effect that's relatively subtle because it's a, it's not a monster effect. You know, the monster effects and the military effects in the uh, Godzilla series films, those are the ones that are front and center. This one is a little bit different. And again, we'd never seen an island blowing up before, so another neat touch uh, as a capper on the end of the movie with Godzilla getting away and all the heroes saved and Mothra carrying everybody, all her natives back to Infant Island. Very, very nice ending. So, as I said, a very, very big tonal shift for the series, a much more laid back pace, a light kind of comedy adventure tone, very different than what had come before. And to me, this is much better than its reputation. This was one that when I was a kid was on TV a lot. Uh, that Walter Reed TV version, I guess, was relatively cheap to get rights to. And I saw this one a lot. And I remember not really caring for it because you've got that first half of the movie where Godzilla's not in it. And I never cared for that as a kid. But watching it now, it's very much... Uh, an adventure movie that has Godzilla in the back half. And it's very enjoyable and fun to watch. The cast is a lot of fun. You know, the villains are a lot of fun. It's it's just an enjoyable kind of weekend afternoon type of movie. And I think it uh, that bright, sunny adventure story uses its, uh, it, it uses its cast of humans and monsters really well to tell that story. And so I think it, it it's, it's better than its reputation that, that precedes it. Um, as I said, once you know the origins as Operation Robinson Crusoe, it's kind of hard to divorce that from the finished product. And I wonder if this film would have a better rep if King Kong had started it instead of Godzilla. Would we have gotten King Kong Escapes if they had made Operation Robinson Crusoe? I don't know. Um, I still think King Kong Escapes is better than this one, so I'm okay with having them be separate, but it's one of those great what-if games to have maybe on an evening when you've had a few uh, few glasses of sake and you're discussing Godzilla films with your uh, like-minded colleagues and friends. Uh, Godzilla and Mothra are both a little shabby looking. Uh, this is the same full-size Mothra puppet that was used in Mothra vs. Godzilla, so it's a few years old at this point too. Uh, not on screen a lot, mostly towards the end, but looks a little shabby, not her best appearance. And as I said, Godzilla, this is the Monster Zero suit that's being reused. So it's it's not in the best of shape. It's not awful. And it's not like Godzilla versus Gigan where the suit is literally falling apart. Uh, but it's not the best suit. Uh, the giant condor is pretty much a waste. I mean, he's only there for like a minute and he doesn't look all that great. But for a one-off, quickie, small monster, he's okay. But Ibero looks fantastically inhuman and is really well realized. So even though 
it's not Ibra is a crustacean still played in a suit not a marionette which is very neat because we'd see in Son of Godzilla the, the inhuman monsters in that film are played by marionette and I don't know that it would have been technically possible to have Ibra be portrayed by a marionette in the effects tank uh, but for a suitmation design Ibra is a wonderfully non-humanoid look and is a great I'm going to say the best looking giant crustacean that uh, that they ever put together much better than uh, uh Ganymes, who is the uh, giant uh, crab monster from Yogg, which we'll cover uh, another time uh, but I think Ebro looks really good memorable if not the most overpowered monster um, overall definitely an above average entry in the Godzilla series the best of the three South Seas Island movies which are this one Son of Godzilla and Godzilla's Revenge uh, and really it's worth watching I mean, definitely worth your time. It'll be an enjoyable romp. It's very light. It's very fun. Um, and it's, it's a change of pace type movie. But sometimes a change of pace is exactly what the doctor ordered. And I think after having three, you know, fairly serious heavy films, having one a little bit lighter uh, was a good choice. And I'm glad that Tanaka went in that direction and got Fukuda and crew to work on this film. Now, if you would like to see the film... The old TriStar DVD, which is very well regarded and is a very beautiful picture and sound, that one is unfortunately out of print. Now, a couple of years ago, Section 23 um, and Kraken releasing released this film on DVD and Blu-ray under the title uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, colon, Ibra, Horror of the Deep. So it uses both titles, uh, which is an interesting way to get around it. Um, these are very nice releases. I have the DVD because I didn't have a Blu-ray player at the time, so I bought the DVD instead. I may upgrade to the Blu-ray just because the Blu-ray looks so nice. Uh, these are very affordable releases. You can get them on Amazon for, as of this recording, $6.37 for the DVD and $9.99 for the Blu-ray. Uh, of course, remember, if you go to Amazon, use the link on 2TrueFreaks.com first. Um, it does not appear to be offered streaming uh, online, so if you want that option, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't find one. But, um, you know, the media for this one, the disc, is, is easy to pick up, readily available, and a good price, so I'd recommend that. Um, I would be remiss... If I did not mention that Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 Season 2, Episode 13, one of the two Godzilla movies uh, featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. It is an absolute hoot. One of my favorite episodes. Uh, I made the reference earlier to the whoop whoop noise. Shout out to my brother. That's one. That's his favorite riff from that movie and is the, um, you know, a classic, classic riff. Uh, it's worth watching. Unfortunately, because it's one of the Toho films, will never be released officially. Uh, so good luck with that. If you search online, you could probably find it to stream and, uh, and, and check it out there. They don't tear the movie apart. They mostly just kind of comment with the movie like they do in a lot of the giant monster films, especially some of the earlier Joel episodes. They were not quite as uh, directly confrontational with the film. Although they were sometimes, but this is not one of them. So definitely worth watching if you're a Godzilla fan, a Misty fan. And if you're a Godzilla fan and a Misty fan, you've probably already seen it. But usually there's a lot of crossover between those two camps anyway. So uh, it was good to watch this. I hadn't seen this one in, in a while. And it was good to break it out and what, well, you know, see the widescreen uh, restored DVD. It looks really nice. Very colorful, very bright, fun film. So, what do you think? What do you think of Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster? You like it? Did you don't don't like it? Please let me know what you think. Write in at 
earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and tell me your thoughts and we'll discuss them here on the air. All right, I'm going to take a quick break and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. some drawn butter get your bibs on bring up those barrels of rice pilaf they've run a crab Ooh. eons past a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man but awakened by an undersea nuclear test the creature returned to life now breathing the fires of radiation, Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 15 was released by the Marvel Comics Group. It is cover dated October 1978 and was released on or about July 4th, 1978. As always, this information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it depicts the King of the Monsters in an Old West Mesa of some point, standing between two mountains uh, in the background and charging toward us, the reader, is a terrified group of cowboys and horses and cattle and the cover copy simply reads Stampede, and that's pretty much all you need to know. Also interesting, the uh, price box is a Starburst, says still only 35 cents, when uh, I think it was only about a year ago or so that they went from 30 to 35 cents to begin with. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, comic book fans complaining about how much their comics cost is a universal thing and not exactly something new. Our writer this issue is Doug Mensch, our penciler Herb Trimpey. Inker is Daniel Green. Our letterer is Shelley Lefferman. Colorist Don Warfield. Editor is Bob Hall. And the title of our story, Rome on the Range. Wandering around out west after leaving Salt Lake City, Godzilla is spotted by Hal and Lefty, a pair of cowboys investigating cattle being rustled from their boss, Mr. Hawks. The cowboys take off, but Godzilla pays them no mind and takes a nap. We then check in on S.H.I.E.L.D. back in Salt Lake City, where Dum Dum orders Red Ronin taken back to Stark for repairs, with Rob Takaguchi pleading that they've just gotta fix Red Ronin. Back on the plains, Hal and Lefty report their fantastical findings to Mr. Hawks, who orders all his hands to go out and find this so-called monster. While Hal and the other cowboys are settled around the campfire, Lefty sneaks off to report to his real boss, Bill Ford, Hawks' rival cattleman, and the organizer of the rustlings. Back at the camp, the revelry is shattered by a stampede caused by the reawakening of Godzilla. Hal acts fast, roping Godzilla's tail and planting a pack of dynamite there, surprising the King of Monsters enough to change direction, putting an end to the stampede. But as Hal charges back to the Hawks' ranch, Godzilla follows and begins smashing the homestead. Next issue, the spectacular conclusion called The Great Godzilla Roundup. 
Ooh, yeah, big change of pace issue. You know, much like we saw kind of a change of pace with Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, change of pace issue here after the, the epic three-part Mega Monster War. Much, much smaller scale story in all respects here. So uh, uh, let's get right into the notes. Our cover, it's okay. It's not great. It's not bad either. It's just kind of an average cover. You know, that's showing the juxtaposition of Godzilla with the Cowboys. Um, a lot of red sky in the background, so the red kind of pops a little bit because our, our logo is just black and white this time. Uh, but not 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 one of Trimpy's best covers. Um, it's all right. It's it's what on like Back to the Bins we call it a C cover. It's average. It doesn't do anything particularly wrong, but it's not great either. So uh, just just an okay cover. Uh, turning open the book now, page one. Our splash page shows Godzilla kind of peering over the top of a hill. How big is this hill that Godzilla is looking over? Uh, I understand we're, we're out west, you know, but still, it's like this is relatively flat country. But uh, apparently Godzilla's looking over the hill. The splash is a little odd because it shows Godzilla looking directly at the camera. And that perspective is always kind of a little weird. Uh, that's why you don't see it too much in the movies. What's interesting about the way Trimpy draws it is that his teeth are, you know, big carrot-looking teeth. They almost look kind of like the classic Jaws um, uh, poster teeth, you know, the big carroty looking teeth here. Turning over now to page three, this is our second splash page of the story. Uh, Godzilla is crouching down and holding the cattle, a couple of mutilated cattle carcasses in his hands. This whole thing is bizarre. Uh, the image of Godzilla squatting is bizarre, and the image of him holding his hand out, holding something in it, is even stranger. The scale is better in this splash page as we see the very small forms of Lefty and Hal on their horses in the foreground. But, you know, they don't have any color on them. Uh, the, a lot of the colors seem a little washed out on this page, except for Godzilla himself and a few smattering of trees here and there. So the perspective is a little bit better, but still not really a great splash page, all things considered. Over now on page six, uh, panel six and seven, the last two on the page, uh, Godzilla gets tired, lays down, and takes a nap. So we have some connective tissue back to uh, Godzilla vs. Sea Monster, where Godzilla similarly uh, was a little drowsy and decided, eh, I'll just take a little nap, no big deal. Over on page seven, we got our subplot check-in as we go back to Salt Lake. Uh, the giant decapitated head of Red Ronin is just lying there. And, um, you know, Rob is really, really upset. He's kind of out of it, you know, he's kind of just staring off vacantly and Tamara is uh, taking care of him here. And they've, uh, as, as Tamara and uh, Johnny Wu and um, Rob fly away in one of the shield helicopters, you see the little word balloon. They just got to fix Red Roan and Tamara. They've just got to. So, you know, I, I, I liked kind of the development of Rob over that story. And it seems like him and his connection with Red Ronin is, is being played their mention is continuing to build in that direction, so uh, I'm okay with this little subplot check-in. I just, I almost wish we had gotten a little bit more of this because, as you'll see, this is the only non-cowboy-related thing in this story is this one page, and it seems a little odd just to have this one uh, check-in, and that's it. Um, next section of the book, which is pages 10 through 16, there's a couple of ads in there too. This whole, this whole segment is like mentioned Trimpier doing a, a cowboy book from like a Marvel book from like the 60s. This could be an issue of Rawhide Kid or Two Gun Kid. It's not really what I've come to expect from this book, which has been, you know, very much set in the modern uh, Marvel universe. And this is too, but it's, it's such a straight Western story that it almost seems like a throwback. 
Um, it's nice for what it is. It's, but it's not really very interesting in a book that has Godzilla on the title, you know, page after page of, you know, these guys are investigating cattle wrestling and they come across this, you know, evidence of something else and around up the posse and this other guy sneaking off to talk to the other ranch boss who is again, organizing the wrestling. I like Westerns, but, and, and Westerns can work with a monster story. This one's just not particularly interesting. Uh, Mensch does get a little cute with us as our two uh, ranch bosses is are named Hawks and Ford, clearly named after Howard Hawks and John Ford, two well-known um, directors who both did epic westerns. So uh, that that was a little uh, that was amusing to me as a as a western movie fan. Uh, it's subtle, but uh, you know you meet Hawks and Ford; those names kind of stand out in any type of western. Over now on uh, page seventeen, this is our third splash of the book, and it is by far the best page in the book as we see. Godzilla looming tall in front of the, the starry sky in the background and all the cattle and men just panicking. It's a kind of a recreation of the cover, except there's no mountains. Godzilla's just standing on a kind of an open plain and uh, the men are all kind of rearing up on their horses, like getting ready to run away. So very well done. Definitely shows off Trimpy's um, traditional sumo wrestler build for Godzilla with his big belly. Uh, and, but the, even the perspective on his face is better, even though, again, he's looking directly at us as the reader, it's not as severe as the first splash page. So it looks a little bit, uh, a little bit less unusual. It looks a bit more uh, normal than we expect from Trimpy's Godzilla. And the colors are nice. They're nice and muted, but we see some highlights, some clear moonlight, uh, y lighter green, almost yellowish sort of patches on Godzilla as he's standing up tall and, uh, you know, revealing himself to all the cowboys. Very nice splash page, clearly the best one of the book. Pages 22 through 23 are the, the sequence where Hal kind of is directing traffic and riding around Godzilla and uh, getting ready to uh, try and rope on his tail. What I liked about this sequence is we never see all of Godzilla at once. As we progress through the panels, we see Godzilla's foot. Then we see kind of a shot between his legs where we see uh, the bottom part of his belly and his tail. Then we get a close up in panel three of his eye. And then panel four on page 22 is a is kind of a far away shot, but we still only see him from the waist down. And then over on 23, we see kind of a, a shot from the rear where we see the back of his leg and his tail, and then we get a close-up of his tail. So since Trimpy has kind of tightened up the frame on Hal, on this one figure on a horse riding around, by necessity, we can't see all of Godzilla. And so I, I think this is a, a well-done bit of uh, visual storytelling here as we see how kind of riding around him and different angles of Godzilla as he rides around him. This reminded me, and this next part, the next uh, uh, sequence reminds me of uh, Godzilla X Megaguirus, which we covered a very long time ago on this show where uh, you know we had a, a G-Force agent kind of climbing on Godzilla and, uh, and you know, again, similarly showing um, Godzilla in just little parts of him because we were tight. Uh, focus on one human-sized character in and around Godzilla. So this is a, a nice bit of uh, storytelling, and this is, uh, I like this sequence a lot, including the next part, which is over on, on page 26, where we see Hal actually managed to use his lasso to rope the very, very end of Godzilla's tail. And again, we only see little bits and pieces of his of his body here, little bits and pieces of his tail, and then stick the, um, the pack of dynamite and light it, and it's like, it's the equivalent of a hot foot, I guess, except it's on his tail. Uh, but of course, with, with Hal riding around here, he's got a, a long, painful future of radiation poisoning to look forward for. So, hey, good on you, man. 
live that cowboy dream. Over on page 27, pages 1 and 2, as the little dynamite goes off, uh, Godzilla looks more annoyed than anything else. In panel 2, he's kind of craning his head around and looking at his tail, and he's like... Arr! So I, I like the bit of character work here from Trimpy, because clearly, you know, a pack of, like, six pieces of dynamite is not going to do any actual damage to Godzilla, but it will probably tick him off enough, and I'm willing to buy that in the story, that it, it annoys him enough that he changes direction to chase after Hal, which you know, gives the uh, the cattle enough of a break that the other cowboys are able to turn them away and stop the stampede. Then uh, pages 30 and 31, as Godzilla comes in on the, uh, the uh, ranch, he looks a little too small. Um, panel four on page 30, which is the bottom panel, he looks like he's only maybe about 50 feet tall here. He almost looks like a King Kong scale more than a Godzilla scale. And that carries over onto... Uh, fourth panel on page 31, which is the last panel of the book, as he smashes on one of the, uh, and crunches one of the buildings of the ranch with his foot. This looks a little too small. The scale is not real consistent, officially compared to panel one on page 30, which is him chasing after Hal, and you see how big his foot is relative to the, the horses. So, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was just trying to fit it into the panels, or if the ranch would have looked comically small next to Godzilla, but it, it does, I don't know, it's a, it's a little inconsistent, a little bit wonky here. Really fast-moving issue. As I said, we have three splash pages, and then we get a, a several-page sequence of how, you know, uh, an action sequence with how riding his horse around and roping at Godzilla and such. But, unfortunately, it doesn't make much of an impact or much of an impression, especially after the really epic previous storyline with the Mega Monsters. Reading this, it's almost as if Mensch wanted to do a tribute to the Valley of Guanji, which, of course, uh, the classic Harryhausen um, dinosaurs versus cowboys movie. And it's kind of similar here. We get the same idea of a cowboy roping a dinosaur with uh, Hal roping Godzilla. Um, the art is nothing special this time out. There's a lot of the book is focused on more cowboy drama, which is not really overly interesting. I mean, I like Western comics okay. I've really tried to get more into them, much like I did with war comics, but... The, the odors are a bit more redundant than the war comics, at least to me. I didn't say redundant, more repetitive, so it's been harder for me to get into them. And Trimpy does an okay job with it. I could see Trimpy again doing a book like Two-Gun Kid or Rawhide Kid, but in Godzilla, I'm, I'm just not really, I don't know, it doesn't seem to fit very well, even given the nature of the story. Um, I'm really hoping the second half of this story improves this because this is a bit of a letdown after, as I said, the, the really fun, really in, engaging Mega Monsters uh, War that we got over the three previous issues. So, well, we will see what issue 16 brings for this one, but issue 15, eh, it was okay. Nothing spectacular. Now, as usual, this is collected in Essential Godzilla if you uh, don't want to pick up the original. Now, flipping through it, um, see if there's any interesting ads. Uh, we get the inside front cover. This is just kind of ironic. Uh, the bad news bears go to Japan. That always cracks me up when I see it in an issue of Godzilla. Um, it says, if, oh, we got to get the Japanese stuff in here. Um, we get the uh, house ad for the five new Mighty Marvel specials. Uh, the uh, Stanley Jack Kirby Silver Surfer is the big one that stands out to me here. I've always, always liked that cover. Um, we get uh, uh, bullpen bulletins, nothing um, particularly uh, of note there. We do get a letters column, and all the letters are positive, which is uh, 
kind of interesting considering some of the letters have been less positive in, in previous ones. Um, no hostess ad or anything this month, so nothing really all that um, all that interesting on the uh, uh, the, the non comic material. We do get on the bullpen's bulletin a, a nice picture of uh, Iron Man as drawn by John Romita Jr., which is pretty nice, you know, for an Iron Man fan like me. But uh, otherwise, uh, pretty pretty straightforward stuff. So uh, that's about all I've got on this one. Have you guys read this issue? Maybe you liked this uh, Godzilla X uh, Valley, of Guan Valley of Guanji story better than I did. What did you think? Why don't you send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the air. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now, normally this is the portion of the show where I would do listener feedback, but unfortunately, the old email bin here at Earth Destruction Directive is empty. So no emails this time out, guys. I'm putting out the call. If you're enjoying the show, not enjoying the show, please send an email in, um, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You know, it's uh, the lifeblood of any uh, of any podcast is the listeners, and every podcaster I know loves getting emails from their listeners. So just putting the call out once again, uh, if you have anything you'd like to uh, say to the show, good, bad, or otherwise, please send an email. Really appreciate that, and uh, hope, uh, hopefully we'll have some to read on the next time out. I'm going to use this time instead to plug a couple other places that you can hear me uh, talking about monsters on the internet. Um, first up, the uh, very recent episode of Is It Jaws, which is the movie show hosted by the producer Paul Spataro on Two True Freaks, uh, featured Kong of Skull Island being discussed by Paul, myself, and my brother Jason. As I said, that is available on twotruefreaks.com, so please go check that out. We had a really fun discussion talking about uh, 2017's Kong reboot that added Kong into the legendary MonsterVerse, so very cool episode. Please go check that out. And as of this recording, it has not been posted yet, but I very recently recorded an episode of Back to the Bins with Paul, where uh, we covered a pair of comics, one of which will very much be of interest to Godzilla fans. That's all I'm going to say. I think everyone who's listening to this will be very pleasantly surprised and very much amused by the comic I am referring to. So please check the Back to the Bins feed on Two True Freaks and see if you can find that one. Not sure when exactly that's going to be posted. Uh, recorded it a couple of weeks 
before the recording of this episode. So it should be on the feed. If not, by the time you listen to this, then fairly soon after. So please take a look for that. All right, so what are we going to be covering next time in Earth Destruction Directive? We are going to be shifting back to the small screen and taking a look at the next two episodes of Ultraman. We'll be looking at episodes 17 and 18. Number 17 features the bizarre monster Bolton, uh, one of the most memorably strange uh, monsters of the entire Ultraman uh, pantheon of monsters. And then episode 18 is Alien Zayrab. So we get an alien menace uh, on that episode as well. We'll be also taking a look at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 16, which will uh, conclude the Godzilla Western storyline that is started in this issue. And we'll also have any new information on uh, any of the upcoming um, uh, giant monster movies for this year, whether it's Pacific Rim Uprising, Rampage, or anything perhaps on Godzilla Planet of the Monsters, or anything like that. And of course, any new information on anything that is related to what we talk about here on Earth Destruction Directive, along with hopefully some emails. So I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope you enjoyed it. Please come back next time. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.